Campsite Media. So Taylor Swift ended 2016 on a low note, to say the least. She was in a public feud with Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. Her mom, who she was incredibly close with, was sick with cancer. She was, at least she felt like she was, persona non grata. So Taylor found comfort where she always had, the pen. And in August 2017, Taylor released her first single from her new album, Reputation. It's an acerbic, stabbing pop song about a woman who has been wronged on the public stage, but rises from the dead a changed person, ready to combat her foes. I'm not being metaphorical here. These are literal lyrics from the song. I'm sorry, the old Taylor can't come to the phone right now. Why? Oh, because she's dead. But it's the video that accompanies this lead single that is the clearest depiction of Taylor's state of mind if a little on the nose. It all begins in a foggy graveyard with a tight shot of a giant gravestone that has these words carved in it. Here lies Taylor Swift's reputation. Then a zombie Taylor Swift drags herself out of the grave and starts singing. I don't like your little games. It's clearly a pointed reference to Kanye West and the references keep coming. Soon, Taylor is sitting on a swing inside a giant gold birdcage, just like the one she used to have in her Nashville home. She's a caged songbird, get it? That could be a reference to her label head, Scott Borchetta. And this Taylor seems not happy about him or whoever it is or anything pretty much at all. She's robbing a safe, riding a motorbike, wearing a militaristic latex outfit and instructing an army of women. There's even an image of her in front of her version of the cross, a giant T. Then she's standing on a heaving pile of women, like one of those paintings you see in a museum of an old Spanish war with humans just crammed into the frame. And in this video, when you look closer, it's not a heaving pile of any old women. It's old tailors. Taylor in glasses. Taylor in a circus ringleader outfit. Country Taylor in a sequin dress strumming a guitar. And then there's the Taylor at her biggest turning point, the 2009 VMAs, when she had the Kanye West altercation in a silver dress holding her moon man. When people start listening to the album this song is on, Reputation, they realize that Taylor's made an entire record addressing the haters. Not just addressing them, becoming them, embodying them, taking on their critique and metabolizing it into a money-making product. After a couple hard years, this is the angle she takes for a comeback. But is it gonna work? From Sony Music Entertainment and Campsite Media, this is Infamous. I'm Natalie Robomet. And I'm Vanessa Gregoriatis. And this is episode three of our series on Taylor Swift. So last episode, we heard about Taylor's transition into pop and her conflict with Kanye West and her label. Yeah, and we also teased out how her appetite for vengeance and justice shows up in her songs and how her rising power in the music industry puts her a bit at odds with her apparent victimhood. So this episode, we're going to follow Taylor as she becomes more powerful than ever and see just how she manages that. 
I mean, this is basically Taylor's ascent to demigod. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. Okay. And I mean, there is something religious about her, right? Like her yeah. albums and her liner notes are poured over by fans like scripture. Mm-hmm. Her every move fanatically observed. I mean, this is very true. My daughter says it's like a cult, the Swifty cult. I mean, the Swifties even talk about different periods in her life as eras, right? Like Genesis, Exodus, <laughs> etc. This episode, we're picking up with Taylor in what would be her book of Job. And look, Taylor sometimes does play the victim too much. Like, I have to admit, I think she's sort of exhausting in that way sometimes. There's definitely a sense in which to be a Swifty today is to be a popular girl, right? Who can afford those really, really expensive concert tickets and the merch, the cheerleader, not the person in the bleachers. And that's not so cool. But from Taylor's perspective, at this point in her life, she's had all the misfortunes of the world thrust upon her, and she's trying to break out of it with this comeback album, Reputation. Here's how Taylor frames this era. Whatever they criticized about me became material for musical satires or inspirational anthems. Basically, if people had something to say about me, I usually said something back in my own way. I believe a popular headline back then was a swift backlash which is clever. You got to give it to him. So did it work? Ingesting and regurgitating these criticisms into a whole album that attempted to rehab her image? Well, not exactly. The album was pretty much met with a collective meh. Taylor's worst album, in my opinion. Sorry, but it's Reputation. Hardcore fans, and Taylor had a lot of them, loved Reputation, but it just didn't win over tons of new fans. To some, it seemed like another cynical ploy from Taylor. There were some huge hits on the album, of course. I mean, this is Taylor Swift. But it didn't turn everything around as she might have hoped. It seemed like Taylor just couldn't win. But she wasn't going to lose faith. I thought about something we talked about back in Nashville when she was 19. You could go to history and learn about things that you could do back then because we had the same human nature. We had the mm-hmm. same wants and fears and doubts, but it was a completely different time period and all these different rules and social systems. In case you can't hear that, and sorry again, these are my old tapes from 15 years ago, she's talking about how much she loves history. And it kind of seems like right now she needed to change course, or she might be history. So one thing to know about Taylor is she's a really canny observer of her own reputation, obviously. That's what the whole album Reputation was about. It was this sort of meta-commentary on the public's perception of her. In the Look What You Made Me Do video, she appeared with a snake, which was a reference to the emoji Kim Kardashian used to refer to her, meaning Taylor was a liar, a snake, duplicitous. The album art itself was her face superimposed over newsprint, obviously a reference to all the headlines about her. Now, one of the things Taylor had come under fire for was using signifiers of feminism, women supporting women, like her girl squad, while also doing things that actively detracted from that, such as writing a whole mean song about Katy Perry or staying silent on pertinent issues like abortion or the potential election of the first female president. And part of me wonders if Taylor realized that in order to rehab her image, she needed to have her own revolution around politics. 
So up until this point, Taylor hadn't said anything political, basically ever. Not when white nationalist groups were calling her their Aryan goddess, not during the Women's March. But after Reputation, that started to change. In October 2018, Taylor endorsed politicians for the first time. She encouraged people to vote for Democratic candidates in her home state of Tennessee. Here's a clip of her from a documentary that she participated in extensively, discussing that endorsement. We've not got involved with politics or religion. Yeah, but this is on the home front. Taylor starts talking about the Republican Senate candidate, Marsha Blackburn. She votes against the reauthorization of the of the Violence Against Women Act, which is just basically protecting us from domestic abuse and stalking, stalking. She votes, she thinks that that if you're a gay couple, or even if you look like a gay couple, you should be allowed to be kicked out of a restaurant. It's really basic human rights, and it's right and wrong at this point. I live in Tennessee. I am Christian. That's not what we stand for. This doesn't sound like a huge deal, but for her, it really was. For Taylor, a former country star, to come out swinging for Democratic candidates, this was a small step for a woman, but a big step for country womankind. It was yet another sign of Taylor shedding her old skin, her girlhood, her learned Southern twang, her Nashville adopted home. She wasn't staying quiet like a good old Southern girl, a songbird trapped in a cage. And throughout all of this, Taylor had been in a protracted private battle with the guy who held the key to her songbird cage, her label head, Scott Borchetta, her rebrand, or becoming more comfortable as her true self, whichever way you wanted to put it, was coming for Scott next. This is Infamous from Campside Media. So in November 2019, Taylor Swift made a big decision. She left Big Machine, the label run by Scott Borchetta that first signed her as a teenager. And she signed to Universal Music Group, she positioned this change as part of being champion for the little guy. Let's listen to the statement she made. Our producer Lily's going to read it. There was one condition that meant more to me than any other deal point. As part of my new contract with Universal Music Group, I asked that any sale of their Spotify shares result in a distribution of money to their artists, non-recoupable. They have generously agreed to this at what they believe will be much better terms than paid out previously by other major labels. I see this as a sign that we are headed toward positive change for creators, a goal I'm never going to stop trying to achieve in whatever ways I can. In other words, Taylor saying that Universal agreed to put any money it got from selling its shares in Spotify toward paying its artists. It was Taylor's way of helping fight for fair payment for artists from streaming, which was becoming a big conversation at the time. She was using her power to help someone other than herself. But there was one other major deal point in the term sheet. I own all of my master recordings that I make from now on. The master recordings are the original copy of an artist's work, and they're worth a lot of money. A lot of payments in music go to whoever owns the masters. Brittany Spanos, the senior writer at Rolling Stone, who teaches a class on Taylor Swift at NYU, is going to talk us through Taylor Swift's debacle with her masters. 
she's as much a student of great songwriters as she is the music industry itself. Like she was not mm. going to go down the same roads that her favorite pop stars had or that her favorite country artists had. I, I always think of her Vogue 73 questions where I think the question was like, <laughs> what advice do you have? And she's like, have a good yes. lawyer. And you know, yeah. it's, it's advice that she's heated. She treats herself like more of a business than an artist and artists not owning their royalties and not owning their music has been a persistent and um, kind of horrific mess in the industry again since the since the dawn of time, and it's because mm. of uh, you know an artist who is not meant to ideally know the how the industry works or how business works or to read a contract who's interested in being creative. The idea is that they'll overlook how much how the money gets to them and mm. how much of it gets to them right to have that reach and that creativity. And, you know, Taylor signed her deal quite young and right. it is what happens. And it was a pretty standard form of, of contracts where the artist does not own their music in that way. And it seems like Taylor, her her good lawyers and her management board of execs um, were going back and forth with Scott Borchetta for what seemed to be quite some time to negotiate because this, this was the end of her contract after reputation. She had signed for six albums um, about what it would look like either for her to go forward or to leave the label. And of course, her trying to get back her music was a big part of that and to own her music. So as far back as 2015, Taylor was reportedly already talking to Scott about getting her master's. At one point, he supposedly offered her a deal that would give her control of one album at a time in exchange for making a new album for him. Scott says he conceded to all her demands, just trying to get her to stay a big machine. But you can see why giving Taylor back her masters would be hard for Scott and for Big Machine. This was the main reason why Big Machine existed. It was the majority of the sales for Big Machine. It was a big part right. of the label's success. I mean, who even knows who else is on Big Machine? I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even off the top of my head. Like, I know I, I know, like Rebo was signed to it for a little bit. Um, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think Florida Georgia Line were on it for a little bit. But, you know, it's like country kind of comes in like these waves in terms of mass popularity um, on hot 100 levels of popularity, right? Like right yeah, now we're seeing right. it happen right now, but like a few years ago it wasn't happening in the same way other than like, you know, prior to like Morgan Wallen, it wasn't happening in that same way. Like it's, it kind mm -hmm. of comes in these waves of like country being like the biggest thing in in um, US market and in, in terms of like any genre. So it's kind of hard to always be sort of a, a genre specific label in that way. Taylor seemed to be having a but was already a pretty tense negotiation with Scott. Of course, we don't have the the full story the way we would all like to have the full story, but it seems like it was already pretty tense between her and Scott Brachetta. According to Scott, he gave in to her demands. According to Taylor, negotiations between her and Scott over the right to own her masters ran dry. Either way, Taylor signed to Universal. And then someone else swooped in to buy those masters. Scooter Braun. Scooter had been Kanye's manager at the time of the 2016 Taylor-Kanye gate feud to end all feuds with them. Scooter clearly was at a point in his career where he was managing a pretty big roster of artists and non-artists. He's managed people outside of the music industry. He seemed to be in a sort of buying moment. Taylor's catalog is a pretty big thing to buy. 
and Scooter comes in with a pretty hefty paycheck and it just felt like a massive betrayal. It's sort of like this like double beef or triple beef situation where it's like Scooter has sort of the the Kanye connection as he managed Kanye at the time of his feud resurfacing with Taylor in, you know, 2016 and then of course Scott working with our Scooter working with Scott. Oh my god, I'm having like the same name as so every single time <laughs> trying to like say too many s scooter. names There's too many <laughs> scooter yeah. working with scott um is of course like this like other form of betrayal like it's just like this like um shakespearean level of just you yeah. know betrayal and feuds and totally and, um <laughs> backstabbing and and all of that she she knows how the industry works like she is right. again a student of a lot of things and i think a lot more so than she may ever reveal and so of course she sort of used it not only to take a stand for her art and for what she's created in a way that a lot of artists have attempted to before or have wanted to before right it makes me think of prince with slave yeah yeah and you know she has decided to not only use this in the same way that she had done with streaming and to kind of take back her own capital and her own discography and her music but also to very publicly shame a group of men who had um, sort of used her as a kind of a pawn as she felt in a weird business game. Taylor goes public with the accusation that her old friend and former label head, Scott Borchetta, sold her masters out from under her to her arch nemesis, Scooter Braun. Here's a Tumblr post from Taylor at that time. Some fun facts about today's news. I learned about Scooter Braun's purchase of my master's as it was announced to the world. All I could think about was the incessant, manipulative bullying I've received at his hands for years. Like when Kim Kardashian orchestrated an illegally recorded snippet of a phone call to be leaked, and then Scooter got his two clients together to bully me online about it. This Tumblr is so very Gossip Girl. She's referring to a screenshot of a FaceTime between Scooter Braun and his clients, Justin Bieber and Kanye West. Justin Bieber posted this screenshot to Instagram to millions of people with this caption. Taylor Swift, what up? When I left my masters in Scott's hands, I made peace with the fact that eventually he would sell them. Never in my worst nightmares did I imagine the buyer would be Scooter. Anytime Scott Borchetta has heard the words Scooter Braun escape my lips, it was when I was either crying or trying not to. He knew what he was doing. They both did. Controlling a woman who didn't want to be associated with them. And Taylor wasn't finished. She made some further comments about this deal at Billboard's Woman of the Decade awards show. The unregulated world of private equity coming in and buying up our music as if it is real estate. This just happened to me without my approval, consultation, or consent. Taylor had been wronged again. And now she was going to complete her rehabilitation by becoming the little girl who slayed the dragon. I made it very clear that I wanted to be able to buy my music. That opportunity was not given to me. And so I just figured I was the one who made this music first. I can just make it again. Taylor started recording her own versions of her albums, starting with Fearless, parentheses, Taylor's version. When something says in parentheses, Taylor's version next to it, that means I own it, which is exciting. (laughs) 
Taylor was entering her hero era, becoming both vulnerable and invulnerable. A very flattering documentary about her, Miss Americana, came out in January 2020, and in it, she talked about her struggle with disordered eating. It's not good for me to see pictures of myself every day because I have a tendency, and it's only happened a few times, and I'm not in any way proud of it, but I get, I tend to get triggered by something, whether it's a picture of me where I feel like I looked like my tummy was too big or or like someone said that I looked pregnant or something and that'll just trigger me to just starve a little bit, just stop eating. I thought that I was just like supposed to feel like I was gonna pass out at the end of a show or in the middle of it. I thought that was how it was and now I realize no, if you eat food, have energy, get stronger, you can do all these shows and not feel it, which is really good revelation. She talked about her mom's cancer. She got cancer several years ago. That has been really hard for me because she's my favorite person. Do you really care if the internet doesn't like you today? if your mom's sick from her chemo. A lot of intimate footage made her seem relatable, lovable, a regular girl who had been wronged. You know, Claire just had a baby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like, I went over to see her and... How is she doing? <laughs> she was... With the motherhood. Well, she's the best because she's like, just so you know, this is what it is. You feed them, change them, they sleep. Yeah. You feed them. You do it all over. You change them. They yeah. sleep. You feed them. Like, it's just she's and I was like, so it's like a Tamagotchi. <laughs> like, oh my god! <laughs> like exactly. Yeah. So, I think you would be an excellent mother. Thanks. In her songs, Taylor was always so intimate, but in her words outside of the songbooks, she hadn't always been able to express herself. What we were seeing was somebody coming into her own as an adult and not just a girl, someone with flaws who was capable of self-reflection. And a few months later, more footage would emerge, not from her documentary, but from another famous chapter of Taylor's life that would vindicate her completely. This is Infamous from Campside Media. So in March 2020, there was a fork in the road to Damascus. Someone leaked the entire phone call between Kanye and Taylor. Not just the clip Kim Kardashian had shared. This was the whole conversation. And it completely vindicated Taylor. It has a very controversial line at the beginning of the song about you. What does it say? Okay, so it says, and the song is so, so dope. And I've, I've literally sat with my wife, with my whole management team, with everything, and tried to rework this line. And the, the, the original way that I thought about it is the best way, but it's the most controversial way. So it's, it's, it's going to go Eminem a little bit. So can you brace yourself for a second? Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, it says, wait a second, you sound sad. Well, is it going to be mean? No, I don't think it's mean. 
So it says, to all my South Side niggas that know me best, I feel like Taylor Swift might owe me sex. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I yeah. need to think about it because I just need to, like, you know, you hear something for the first time and you just need to think about it. Yeah. Um, because it is absolutely crazy. I'm glad it's not mean, though. It doesn't feel mean. Um, mm. But, like, oh, my God, the build-up you gave it, I thought it was going to be like, that stupid, dumb bitch. Like, but it's not. So the lyrics Kanye tees up as the upsetting ones are, Taylor might owe me sex. They talk about this for a very, very long time. And then later on, Kanye offhandedly mentions that there's also a line saying, I made her famous. Taylor doesn't seem pleased about it, but the moment passes. This lyric doesn't seem like the point of the call. Okay, now what if later in the song, I was also to have said, uh, I made her famous. I mean, um, mm. it's just kind of like whatever at this point. Yeah. But I mean, just you gotta tell a story the way that it happened to you and the way that you experienced it. Like, you honestly didn't know who I was before that. Like, yeah. it, it doesn't matter if I sold 7 million of that album before you did that, which is what happened. You didn't mm. know who I was before that. It's fine. Kanye doesn't once ask her permission for the line, I made that bitch famous. Instead, he's worried about the might-still-have-sex line. Britney Spanos again. The thing that always like, really, really <laughs> fucks me up about the whole situation is that it's literally all over a misunderstanding of what line she's angry about. Right. <laughs> I cannot emphasize enough how stupid it sounds in retrospect because it is like literally a miscommunication. Wait, um, so what line is Taylor angry about? And, I made that bitch famous. Does, yes, Taylor is mad that he said, I made that bitch famous. And in mm. the video that Kim leaked, Kanye is only asking her permission for, I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex, to which right. Taylor is fine with. But Taylor does not hear the line, I made, the, or, I made that bitch famous. And that is the line that pisses. She doesn't care about that, I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex line. She thinks it's funny. But I made that bitch famous is the thing that really pisses her off because she did not like that he was taking credit for her fame. She did not like that he was calling her a bitch. When they released yeah. the whole tape recording, he says, I'm going to say, like, we had sex. And that's what they discuss for, like, 20 minutes, right? Yes. And then the later entire... he's like, oh, oh, by the way, is it cool if I say I might, or, or he just says, like, hey, I might also say I made you famous. And she's like, okay, whatever. Because, like, she doesn't think that's the thing he's really talking about. He never uses yeah. the phrase, that bitch. Yeah. With the release of this unedited conversation, Taylor was fully vindicated. She had slain the dragon. Now it looked like Kim and Kanye were the ones who were duplicitous, who were snakes. They were the ones who released an edited version to make Taylor look bad. The Book of Job was officially closed. Taylor was ready to begin her ascension. And she did it with a phenomenal output of music. From the summer of 2020 through the end of 2022, she released five albums, including two re-recordings of Fearless and Red. This was the time of COVID, a period of extreme isolation, and Taylor became many people's soundtracks. I am a big fan of Taylor Swift and her music, and I like a, an emotional song. I like to be absolutely devastated 
by a lyric. And um, I think that's what I look for in a lot of music that I love. Well, I I also look for like, you know, the lighthearted funness and kind of um, irreverence that comes with a lot of pop music as well. But I, I think the artists that obviously I've, I've always kind of been very much more connected to in a really deep way have had a lot of songs that I, I find like absolutely harrowing to listen to in certain mm. <laughs> under certain circumstances I just I think she's a great songwriter and I think that um I think that when it comes down to it we're gonna look back in decades to come and see her as you know one of the greatest songwriters of all time on the heels of these chart-topping releases Taylor announced her biggest tour ever the era's tour Everyone was clamoring for a ticket into heaven. So much so, it broke Ticketmaster. When the queue opened up to finally buy tickets for Taylor Swift's upcoming stadium tour, her fans, the Swifties, went from freaking out. Are you joking? To melting down. The tickets you have selected have been released. The line has stopped moving. The website fully crashed. I waited in line. It was such a fiasco, it prompted a Senate hearing on Ticketmaster. You know, I think like we've only seen Taylor become more and more and more powerful. I mean, and to me, that's embodied by the whole Ticketmaster debacle with people not being able to get tickets to the Eras tour and then her slamming the company and then the DOJ investigating a possible antitrust case. But uh, more specifically, the music and what this moment represents, right? She really just seems to be at her peak, but reaching new peaks every year. I mean, do you think this is a time where she's going to, after this, step back and quote unquote, be a mom, which is something some people have been saying, which sort of seems ridiculous. But <laughs> I mean, what, and it, and it really seems like this tour is all about her looking back. What do you think is going to come next? And how do you feel about this era's moment? I think what's nice about this tour and this particular particular moment of her career where she is re-recording her albums and re-releasing the first six albums and all of that and, and seeing sort of a massive success of that project is that this is like a once in a career type of move to do like like three and a half hours of very like album specific moments um, yeah. across it. It's not something she's going to do probably ever again. And if she does do it again, it's going to be way later in her career and probably look much different than it does now. And especially given how prolific she is, like, I don't, I, again, like, I, I don't know that this will happen. Um, this type of tour will happen again for her specifically. But I think that it allows her to be a bit nostalgic kind of early and revel in it. But also, I I think it allows her to, like, allow all the sides of her to kind of coexist at once in a way that she probably hasn't let in past tours. I think Country Mm -hmm. Taylor gets, almost doesn't get as much time, but I think that sort of, like, the fearless moment in the tour is next to, was it, like, Evermore? And you have, like, like, you have her kind of reliving these moments in her career and letting them coexist all at once and letting fans who may have come to her at each of those albums or moments to also relive them alongside with her. To Britney, the era's tour is Taylor writing the book of Taylor while she's still alive. I think it's fascinating to see that canon be built in a way that a lot of her heroes were not allowed during their times and during their heydays. And I think it is really fun to 
acknowledge that. I think we should be doing that more while people are not only alive, but at sort of their peaks. And we should allow that to happen. I don't think we should wait until they've retired or mm-hmm. have died for us to say they are great. And I don't I don't think we need to wait that long to do that. So I think it's really fun to be able to do that now with someone who is very willing to continue to self-pathologize and right. canonize herself. And it's worth it. So what comes after this era? I don't know that she's ever going to disappear or take a significant amount of time off, as we've learned. You know, I think that she's a pretty, she's in a huge creative streak. I wonder if maybe she might just take a break from touring for a little bit. I cannot see her stop stopping from writing music or releasing albums. And like we know, she doesn't need a tour to, to make that work for her, as we saw with Folklore and Evermore. But I mean, even if she decides that she wants to settle down in her life in that way and have kids or whatever, I don't I feel like there'll be a whole other set of albums from her. I feel like that's like gonna be a whole new creative moment for her. You know, I think it'll unlock like a totally different zone for her creatively like that, you know, um, we'll probably get like five albums in like a year. <laughs> yeah. So you know, she'll just be like pregnant for nine months and like she'll want to like suddenly yeah. be like, I have like so much to say about Yeah, this. exactly. How um, I feel about being First mother. trimester, second yeah. trimester. Yeah. Like, I mean, and that's kind of the cool part. Like, I think we're seeing someone who's like in a real like creative hot streak moment and like that's always really fun to watch. And, you know, it happens like, you know, it, I, I mean, ideally it happens for a while in your life and it's lucky if you even have that at all. And so, yeah. Um, it's it's cool to see that and I'm sure she's going to continue doing that and hopefully be more inspired and want to do that and on her own terms I don't think she again will need to do this type of tour for a long time if ever again and I think it's just going to be a reset I think it allows her to sort of you know maybe if she wants to do like a another folk or evermore style album she can do that she can continue with like the midnight style of synth pop she can go back to country she can release a rock album like she could really at this point do whatever the hell she wants and that's mm-hmm. like an a weird place to be as an artist with this much time into your career. Very few artists kind of reach this point. Um, And I think she's gonna take advantage of it and continue to take advantage of it. I think she's, again, she's very smart. She knows how the business works. And I don't think that we'll ever see her totally like, totally disappear for too long. It looks like the Book of Taylor has many more chapters to go. Next time on Infamous, we have a bonus about Taylor. We'll have a bit of a girl dinner episode, talk about her actual dinners in New York City at various restaurants, her football player boyfriend, and more. I have been Gaylor Pill. Like, I have absolutely, I am drinking that Kool-Aid. Swifties explaining to other Swifties, like, NFL things. And they were like, okay, so a touchdown is kind of like a big sleigh. He said she eats, she pays, she gets the fuck out. 